Good morning, my name is Kyle, and I am one of the pastors here, and we have been in a series where we're looking at our core convictions as our church, the convictions that most animate and drive us as a church that kind of form who we are. And we've looked at uh, various convictions, well, we've looked at two so far, we spent two weeks on each. Um, One, the gospel has the power to change everything. The good news about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has the power to change everything. That's, that's our fundamental conviction here. The second thing, uh, we talked about a priority, and that is the priority of worship. That, that worshiping God and that what we do here in the gathered body on a Sunday morning is of um, supreme value and uh, supreme value in our life in Christ. But now we come to uh, another core conviction, and this one I would say is probably one that surprises people a bit, and that is that creation is good. It's right there in 1 Timothy 4.4. Everything created by God is good. Now, I think most people would say, gospel has the power to change everything. Yeah, got that, church, right. Uh, worship is important. Yeah, that's kind of what churches do. They have services of worship on Sunday morning. Got it. Good. Um, but, but creation is good. That one maybe folks scratch their head a little bit about. But I hope that by the end of this, you'll have some clarity on why I think this is so important and informs so much of what we do. As I do that, let me pray for us. God, uh, we would see your character especially shine through. Your revelation in Jesus Christ. Would that we see the world as you see it. To delight as you delight, to grieve as you grieve, and to hope as you hope. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if you saw the movie First Reformed. It was a really interesting film where Ethan Hawke is the lead character, and he plays he plays a, uh, a small, um, a minister of a small church named Ernst uh, Toller. And it's a small church in upstate New York that it has a long storied history. It's 250 years old. Uh, but recently it's become kind of not much more than a museum. Uh, but the, the movie really revolves around this, uh, this question about, well, it's this question that, that Toller is asked as he is, counseling an environmental activist. He's sitting there and he's counseling an environmental activist and the environmental activist is struggling about bringing a child into this world and the environmental activist looks at Reverend Toller and says, will God forgive us? Will God forgive us for destroying his creation? And this question haunts Reverend Toller. Later on in the film, he goes and he, um, 
seeks counsel from a, lar- a pastor of a larger kind of uh, influential church in town, and he asks the pastor this question. And he says, you know, it's, it's been burdening me. And the pastor seems kind of indifferent to it. And Tala responds, but what of God's creation? Heavens declare the, God's glory. He is everywhere present. And the megachurch pastor responds, creation waits in eager expectation of liberation from bondage. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. This response, this dialogue, is meant to get across a fundamental tension that we see with the way that Christians have related to the stuff of the earth, the created world. Uh, On the one hand, there's the sense that creation declares the glory of God. On the other hand, uh, there's a sense that, well, it's really... It's really all um, it's really all marked by by destruction and by uh, decomposition, and therefore, should we really care about it? This tension: How should Christians relate to the stuff of the earth, to matter, to material things? It's really common, I think, uh, in our day to think that to be spiritual is to not be concerned with or be passionate about things like food or business or technology or government. That those things just kind of get in the way of a relationship with God. Our movies depict this really well. There was this movie called The Big Kahuna. Uh, It had... uh, Dan Aykroyd and Kevin Spacey, and they're playing these salesmen. And they go on this sales trip with a guy named Bob. Bob is new to the team, and Bob is a Christian. And their whole, uh, the whole point of the sales trip is that they can land a sale. They can pitch their product, which has to do with industrial lubricants. They can uh, pitch their product to the big kahuna. And Bob, he, he gets an audience with the big kahuna, with this guy. And instead of talking about industrial lubricants or anything like that, Bob, uh, he, he talks about life and death and, and eternity. And one of the main reasons why Bob talks about life and death and eternity and doesn't talk about industrial lubricants is that Bob believes that kind of business and the world of kind of everyday affairs and trading and money and things like that, well, they just kind of get in the way uh, of a relationship with God and of the things that really matter. He sees business as a necessary evil. And a lot of people do this today, and this comes across in how we view, for instance, different vocations. Many of us uh, have at some point in time, or maybe even think, subconsciously that we esteem certain vocations over others. For instance, if you really want to serve God, then you need to kind of do what I do, right? Or be a missionary, or at least work in a church, or something like that. Because you can't really serve God, I mean, not not wholly and completely if you're, I don't know, making microchips or managing money. Uh, That's a very common thought. It's also common, it doesn't just have to do with how we view vocations, it also has to do with with the way in which we enjoy the physical stuff of the earth. Uh, This is depicted really well in um, Babette's Feast. Some of you have seen this, it's the the Danish 1987 film about a small 
Lutheran village where this austere Lutheran, uh, pietistic Lutheran pastor has these two daughters. And the daughters have these suitors that, that want to marry them. But he thinks that, you know, marriage and love and pleasure is something to be derided. And this... Um, this, this forms the daughter so much so that later on in life, they don't even think they can enjoy a nice meal when this French chef comes to town. And this French chef is going to make this, this luxurious meal for them, and they decide, we'll eat it, but we won't enjoy it, right? Because that would be unspiritual, so the thought goes. And, and I think that it captures something of of the ways in which Christians view the stuff of the earth. Uh, there's this kind of sense that to, to spend money on or to enjoy something that is really nice or physical or something like that is, is somehow unspiritual. It's why often in the Christian church, sex, for instance, is viewed as uh, a guilty pleasure at best, if not... Uh, something that is taints you, something wrong. It's why I think that we have a lot of ambivalence over the body and why discipleship doesn't include talk of the body, why it overlooks the body. Um, but, but I think that, that this idea that these things are distractions from 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 our spiritual pursuits. You know, this is a very common idea. It's also a very ancient one. It's something that Christians have struggled with from the very beginning. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is addressing teachers, false teachers, and these teachers, it says, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. They forbid marriage, verse 3 of chapter 4, and they require abstinence from certain types of foods. In other words, what these teachers are doing is they are denying the enduring and inherent goodness of creation. You have to understand that. You see, when God created the world, we get to the sixth day, and what we see at the kind of climax of it is that God says, Behold, I have given you every tree for food. God sets a banquet. And also, at the climax of the sixth day, he institutes marriage. These are the very things that they're saying that you should not be concerned with. Now, why are they saying that? We're not sure. Maybe they had a Greek view of the world that said that basically uh, matter is bad and the immaterial is good and, and the soul is just... Uh, is, um, it's kind of imprisoned in this body, and the thing that you want to do is be, be rid of the body and be free of it. Maybe that's the case. Maybe they thought that with the coming of Jesus Christ, I mean, these were teachers in the church, maybe they thought with the coming of Jesus Christ and with his promised return that these things are kind of trivial and so we shouldn't worry about them. Uh, maybe they thought that, that somehow you know, the sex that goes along with marriage or the food that were being eaten were, were to taint people somehow, to make them unclean. We're really not sure exactly, but, but all these things kind of exist today in our own minds. 
one thing we do know is this. Paul does not take to this teaching lightly. Did you notice that? Look at verse 1. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, that is, in the times that have come because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, some will depart from the faith. He's talking about the time in which he's writing up to the present. And this is how they do it. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teaching of demons. Paul thinks that this teaching is a form of demonic teaching of demons, apostasy, falling away from the faith. And those are strong words. Paul does not take lightly to this kind of anti-creational view of the world. Why? Well, I think for three reasons. Three reasons Paul takes this so seriously that I want to consider. First, he takes it seriously because of God's goodness. Twice, Paul points out that the things that they are denying people or rejecting are things that God created. They are created by God, verse 3. The foods are created by God. And then verse 4, he says, everything created by God is good. See, Paul wants to make sure that we understand that God is the creator of all things. And because God is good, God creates good things. The heavens declare his glory, the skies, the work of his hands. You see, everything in this world is is meant to point us back to the goodness and the glory and the power of God. When the psalmist says, for instance, in Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you, he doesn't mean that there aren't good things in the world. He means that every good in this world is a derivative of the good one. That the goodness that is in anything is only good because it is linked to the creator who is ultimately good. I remember being in, I was in Florence and I got to go to the uh, Academia Gallery there and that's where Michelangelo's David is. I don't know if you've seen this, Um, but you know, you walk down through the corridors and you turn the corner and it's down this long hall and it's just huge, right? Now I've seen pictures of the David I've, um, you know, it's, it's very famous to like put, put it up in clips or like, you know, put, it, put David with a funny hat or something like that, right? You've all seen these things. But when you stand before Michelangelo's David, it, it's pretty amazing. And I was standing there, I was kind of awestruck. And then all of a sudden I started to think about like, who, who is Michelangelo? And what skill and craft and what kind of person was he? And then I started to think about his other works of art. And I just sat there and I reflected on it. And the minutes rolled by as I started thinking about Michelangelo and how much I'd like to meet him. And then I started thinking, and who made Michelangelo? Who made the one who has these skills? Who endowed him with these skills to do these things? You see, the statue was was something that drew me to the person. 
the creation was something that drew me to the creator. And then even that crea creator is a creation that drew me to the ultimate creator, the creator of all things. Everything God created is good because God is good and it's a reflection of who he is. And it's not simply that, it's not simply that God is good and he made a good world. God perceived the world as good. Did you hear that read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31? It says, and behold, and God saw that it was good. Not simply that he made it good, but that is that God actually evaluated the world as good. That, that he has taste, aesthetic sensibilities. And when he saw the world, he said, yes, this is good. And when we say the world is not good, then we, we say that God's tastes are off. We say something about God and his goodness that isn't true. You see, see, God saw the world and he delighted in the world and he said, yes, I'm satisfied with the good world that I have made. You know, Often if you ask Christians, and Christians were to give their first word on creation and their first word on humanity, a lot of times our first word is, it's bad. The world is bad. People are bad. Society's bad. Right? That is not the Bible's first word. And we need to be really clear about that. The Bible's first word is, it is good. In fact, seven times, which is a note of completion in, the, in, in, in Hebrew thought, seven times God says in those opening verses, or God sees that it is good. It is wholly good. It is completely good. It is entirely good. Ethically, beautifully, resoundingly good. Now, yes... The world is under a curse. Yes, sin distorts God's good creation. Yes, we have taken God's good world and we have perverted it and twisted it. But listen, neither we nor Satan can create anything. We did not create anything. Evil is no ontology. See, at the root of everything is the good world that God created. The only thing that we could do is lie about the truth and twist the truth and twist the good. But we could not create the bad. Bad is a twisting of the good. You see, sin distorts God's good creation, but underneath it all, it cannot destroy it. That's why even when you go to the ruins of places like the Colosseum, you can still see the glory of its creator, even, even in its ruins, and its decimation. The first word, the first word, though, that we have to realize that God speaks over the world is it is good. And I think the goodness of God is the, one of the reasons why Paul gets so animated about this false teaching. The second reason, though, is not simply because of God's goodness, but also because of God's goal. Verse 3 says that God created this world with a goal. 
God created the food with a goal to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Did you ever notice that when God created the world in Genesis, right when it says, right before it says, and God saw, it says, and behold, God saw. Now, behold, who's, who's that talking to? You and me, the reader. It's not talking to God. God saw, and what behold is doing is it's an invitation to see the world as God sees the world, to take delight in it as God takes delight in it, to join in in the satisfaction that God feels about his good world. But you know what happened? We stopped seeing the world as God sees the world. Did you notice what happened? Do you remember what happened in Genesis 2? What did Eve do? And she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. She saw. She saw in a way that God didn't see because God didn't see that tree as good for good food. God saw it as good, but not good for food. She, she stopped seeing the world as God saw the world. And that has been one of our primary problems ever since. We no longer see as God sees. We no longer evaluate the good as God evaluates the good. And so we have a distorted view of this world. But Paul says those who believe and who know the truth, they are enabled to relate to God's creation as God relates to his creation in a proper way. Because why? What do those who believe and know the truth know? They know that creation is not an end in itself. They know that creation is a portal, a window to see something far greater, the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. The church father, Augustine, he used to distinguish between enjoying something and using something. And he said that creation is never to be enjoyed. Now that's kind of shocking to us, but don't get me wrong. It's not that Augustine didn't delight in God's creation. Augustine was famous for loving the sea. He always wanted to live by the sea, and he always talked about the sea. Augustine loved the sea, so maybe he'd want to live here. But, but what he meant was this. He said to enjoy something, to enjoy something is, is to treat it as an end in itself, to see it as a good in itself, to enjoy it as the end. He said, no, 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 creation is not to be enjoyed because only God can be enjoyed. Creation is to be used. In other words, and he didn't mean, he didn't mean that creation is to be exploited. He didn't mean that creation is to be vandalized. He meant that creation is to be a means through which we enjoy God, the source of all love and life. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. Beauty was not in them. It only came through them. You see, you see, this whole world, everything that's been given, has been given as a means to glorify God, to know Him to enjoy Him, to commune with Him, to behold with Him. 
I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you had a period in time, like a point in life, and it was just the most wonderful thing at this place, right? So maybe it was a camp for you, and you went to a camp as a kid, and you just loved it. Or maybe it was your college days, and you just have fond memories of your college town. I mean, you think of the restaurant down the street, and you think of the coffee shop that you used to go to with your friends in early morning study periods, whatever. I mean, you have one of those places, right? You know what I'm talking about. And then, have you ever had this experience where later in life you go back to that camp or that town, and you think, it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to live there for the summer. And then you get to the end of the summer, and you're like, eh, it's kind of blah. Why? Because what you started to realize is that it wasn't about the camp or the town, that the camp or the town were only means, means that provided relationships with these people that are no longer there. And so when you go back, it falls flat because what you really enjoyed was not the place, but the people, but the place provided the means through which you enjoyed the people. This place... And all its stuff, all the stuff of the earth, is a means through which we enjoy God. And if we think that it's located, that we're satisfied with the stuff, then it will fall flat. It, it will always fall flat. Notice that uh, that's why I think that, that happiness often eludes our grip and we are constantly filling ourselves with more and more and more stuff. Because the longings that we feel we have for creation are actually a longing for God through creation. And we just can't get it. We just can't get it. All our hunger for food is ultimately a hunger for God through food. See, notice that Paul gives these two caveats. He says that nothing that is created, everything that is created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. And then he gives this caveat, verse 4, if it is received with thanksgiving. See, thanksgiving is a means of communing with God. Thanksgiving is a recognition that it comes from God and it returns to God. Psalm 145.10, all your works give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. See, how do God's works, his creation, give thanks to him? By his saints blessing him, giving thanks to him. So whether it's sex or soda, sunsets or cool breezes, mountains or neighbors, everything is to be received and turned back into a communion with God by giving thanks. And it is very hard to give thanks when you are perverting and misusing creation. If you take creation, the stuff of the earth, and you misuse it and you pervert it, you can't do that with a thankful heart. That's why we stay in the disposition of thanks. He continues to go on for, these things are made holy by the word of God and prayer. Prayer. Prayer is a recognition of God's prior action in making and beholding. Prayer is part of our response to God's invitation to behold. Look with me. Commune with me. Delight with me. Be satisfied with me in the world that I have made. It's an invitation into relationship, and prayer is our response to that. 
So the Babylonian Talmud, this ancient Jewish text, said that it is forbidden for a man to enjoy anything of this world without a benediction. I love that. But, but you, know, you know who was another ancient Jew who said basically the same thing? Paul. 1 Corinthians 10, 30, and 31, he said, If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, not just eating and drinking, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Because these things, they are made holy. The word of God and through prayer. Holy, that's an interesting way to put it. Holy. You know, holiness is to be set apart for worship. Holiness is for something to be set apart for sacred use. And Paul says that all these things are made holy through the word of God and through prayer. Did you know that Eden was a sanctuary? And that Adam and Eve were priests to God? Did you know that this world is made to be a sanctuary and that you, believer, anointed in the anointing of Christ, are a king and a priest to God? And did you know that whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, that it can be made into a worship of God, holy, an offering of your service to God. So what do you do? Some of you hold little babies, newborns, when they come out, and you care for them. You, 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 you prep them, and you make sure that their vitals are there in the ER as an offering to God. Some of you prepare meals to your chefs and you mine the stuff of the earth and, and you cut it up and you, and you cook it in such a way that it's delightful to the palate and nutritious to the body. It's an offering to God. Some of you work in politics. Politics is not a necessary evil. Government is not a necessary evil. It's actually an extension of the fact that God created us to live in families and then to enlarge those families and communities and how do communities live together and govern, uh, like we have to live together and therefore we need some governance. This is, this is all part of the stuff of the earth. Marriage that these folks are denying is one of the institutions that God has established and so, so is government. And you do that as an offering to God. Some of you work with helping people with physical fitness. And you do so as an offering to God. Some of you are educators. Your lesson plans are an offering to God. And some of you are students. And when you sit down and you study and you take your quizzes and you, you mind the wonders of God's creation in all its forms from the stem to the humanities, you say, man... There's so much glory here because we have a beautiful, big, powerful, good God. Paul, I think it's so animated because this denial, this rejection of creation is a rejection not only of the goodness of God, but of the goal of God, which is that through creation, all people, all things might be in communion with him and glorify him. But there's one last reason that I think Paul gets so animated over this. 
and that is because of God's gospel. Notice in verse 1 that it says that some will depart from the faith by teaching these things. Paul views this teaching as a departure from the faith. Now when Paul uses the faith or that language, he, he means the faith of the gospel. He means the gospel itself, the good news. See, what faith is he talking about? He's talking about the faith that he has just proclaimed in the last verse of the last chapter, chapter 3, verse 16. He's talking about the faith that Jesus was manifest in the flesh. That God and the person of Jesus Christ took on the stuff of the earth. And that he was glorified in that same flesh. Jesus took on a body, the stuff of the earth, and he didn't leave it behind when he ascended into heaven. The dust of the earth, as one writer said, sits on the throne of heaven. Barbara Brown Taylor says, by ascending bodily into heaven, Jesus showed us that flesh and blood are good, not bad. That they are good enough for Jesus, good enough for heaven, good enough for God. By putting them on and keeping them on, Jesus has not only brought God to us, he has brought us to God. See, humanity has been taken up into the Trinity. And not just humanity, but the rest of creation with it. I want you to think about that for a second. See, we, we have this sense that somehow creation is something separate from us. And while I would say that, that no doubt humans are distinct from the rest of the created order, they are also inseparable from it because, because you are an embodied soul and a soul embodied. As one, as one person put it, Paul's view of the body is that, is that humans not only have a body, but they are a body. We present ourselves to God by presenting our bodies to God. What other way do we have of relating to God and to the world and to one another and serving him? And yet our bodies, don't they link us with the rest of the created order? Isn't your body sustained by food, by taking the stuff of the earth into your body? You see, creation has been, has been rescued by God taking on creation, crucifying, creation being crucified and purged of sin, and then creation raising again and going up into heaven. And where he has ascended, we shall go. One of the earliest confessions of who Jesus is and what he did is in Colossians chapter 1. Some people called a him. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It's certainly very poetic, and it certainly is a confession and kind of creedal. And it has two stanzas. The first stanza says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and he, uh, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
At first it says that he's the firstborn of all creation, but it clearly doesn't mean that Jesus is part of creation. There's something distinct here going on because it says that all things were created in him and through him and for him. Jesus is the one to whom creation turns as its goal and and the purpose of his existence. This is the first part of the sermon we were talking about. That all things exist for Jesus Christ. All things hold together in Jesus Christ. He is the key to it all. But then it goes to a second stanza, and that stanza is all about redemption. And it's nicely, even, it's evenly structured. And Paul goes on to say, And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. What are all these things that he is reconciling? Well, all the things that he mentioned before, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, everything. See, God's unstoppable goal is nothing less than the restoration of his good creation, the eradication, not of it, but of the sin that has damaged it, and even the triumph of the body over death itself. And that, that is the link. The incarnation validates our physicality. In the incarnation, God says, in as strong a way as possible, I love and am pleased with my creation, and you should be also. All things. So here's what I think this means. It's a call for us to glorify the Lord with our bodies. And not only to glorify the Lord with our bodies, but to glorify the Lord with all the stuff of the earth that our bodies are linked to. Recognizing that while we are not going to liberate this world from its bondage decay, Jesus is. And we wait and prepare and celebrate that day. A day in which all things will be made new and more than new transfigured, and there is a beatific vision, and the glory of God shines through all, and he is in all. And we get to start thanking and praising God, communing with him with the stuff of the earth, even right now, even at this table. So let's prepare as we do so. Amen.